Alrighty, so back again. This time we're talking about Gayatri Spivak's Can the Subaltern Speak? A pretty important text in like every field, uh, but pretty specifically in post-colonial studies and uh, feminist thought. So a few things to say before jumping into this. Um, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. Uh, you can also find this in podcast form unless you already are. But anyways, if you aren't, if you're on YouTube, you can find this pretty much anywhere. Uh, you get podcasts and there are no ads there, you know, thank God, uh, because ads are deplorable. You can also support me on Insta- on Instagram, on Patreon or PayPal if you would like. Uh, but, you know, in these times, be sure to contribute to those that need it most, like Black Content Creators or Black Lives Matter um, or any organization that's currently helping Black trans people, for instance. Uh, anything like that, you know, if you think about giving me anything... Consider first giving to them. Uh, and on that note, I'd like to thank a number of people. Anshul, Paul, Amrit, Honrik, Used, uh, Killswitch, Julio, John, Boz, Matt, and James, and Ashley, who've all been super helpful in keeping this going. Uh, and then without further ado, let's jump into this, because this is a really difficult text, and I want to say that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to present what's going on here. But... There, there's a lot, and it's really dense for short text. It's extremely dense, and there are things I'm not going to be going into. Uh, so if, and I normally say this at the end, but if I mischaracterize Spivak in any way, or there are things I omitted that I should have included, uh, I'd really love it if you could include it. But I'm going to try my best to make this text make sense. So let's start then from just the title. She is asking, can the subaltern speak? Uh, so most of those words make sense. We know what they mean. Subaltern, on the other hand, is a little bit of a tricky word. So if we break it down, we are. It, it is comprised of two words: the prefix sub, and the, I guess, the root or the main word, altern. So sub means less than. It is below altern. That's a guitar pick that fell. Uh, altern. So if we think of altern. It might connote a few different things. To be altern might be to be alternate. It might mean to be different. It might mean to be um, maybe less developed. Uh, in any case, it means quite roughly we can understand it to mean different. Now, when she's saying she puts these two words together, that is sub and altern, or the prefix with altern, she's saying that people who are sub almost different, right? These are people that are less than just different. Because difference works within a kind of dialectic. It works within um, a field of intelligibility, to use a kind of fancy uh, way way to describe it, where these people aren't even recognized. Now, she's describing this in, in the case of colonized people, specifically colonized women, but men, of course, uh, fall into the, this category as well, where colonized people having, you know, their entire cultures stripped away uh, and there is established, you know, colonial rule, colonial legal apparatuses, various other colonial institutions, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for colonized people to have a voice. 
So I'm just saying that to kind of set the, the tone here. And spoiler alert, for her, the subaltern cannot speak. That is how she ends the piece. So I think it's important to lay that out because it'll give us an understanding of what she's doing through the rest of the text. Now, as for the beginning, she sets out by positioning herself against the work of Deleuze and Foucault. So these are two French thinkers, Gilles Deleuze, or Gilles Deleuze and uh, Michel Foucault. Two French thinkers, you know, writing prominently in the 70s and, and early 80s and through the 80s with uh, Deleuze, who Spivak wants to challenge. And there are a few different reasons for this, and we're going to get into them. But just to say kind of broadly, she associates them with the broader project of post-structuralism. Now, it would be wrong of us to say that Spivak is writing against post-structuralism. Totally. She's not. She is writing against Deleuze and Foucault. And the reason I say that is because she takes solace or finds solace in the work of Jacques Derrida, whose work she's going to make reference to toward the end of this piece. Now, don't worry about it yet if you know you're, you don't know what these thinkers say, respectively, because um, we're going to get into that. But I'm just trying to set the, the tone here or the, the contrast that she's, uh, she develops between herself and these thinkers. So what these thinkers were doing, that is Deleuze and Foucault, this is how uh, Spivak characterizes them. So they are responding to the idea of the Western subject. So what is that? Well, it comes out of um, the Enlightenment, specifically in modernity, where there was, and there were a number of figures that were uh, responsible for this. Some of them were Hobbes, uh, Locke, uh, Descartes, to go back a little bit further, I guess, um, who were positing that the human, which is often a white, you know, European human, has inalienable rights as a subject. They have various needs as far as their legal representation should go, as far as their uh, livelihood should be, and so on and so forth. And what this did, especially in the case of John Locke, was kind of justify the white European man's position on the world stage. That is a position that was greater than everyone else's. So with that, they were able to justify things like colonialism and imperialism and just taking from other people, essentially. Now, this is obviously very problematic. And this is something that Deleuze and Foucault both take on in their own way. Now, I'm going to be very brief about how they're different, but because I want to highlight how they are the same. But for Deleuze, and his work is wrapped up with another, uh, another guy named uh, Felix uh, Guattari, who they, they wrote together, uh, the two of them. And what they were arguing is that this idea of a kind of unitary total subject is erroneous when we consider the ways that humans change and develop. And this comes about simply by humans existing alongside other humans, alongside animals, alongside, and you know, inanimate objects too. There's always a kind of change and flux emerging. So they use this idea to oppose the idea of the kind of enlightenment subject, this kind of total, uh, you know, anthropocentric subject that places the human 
more specifically the white European male human above everyone else. So I want to read just a little quote from them that Spivak doesn't supply, but I, I will here just to give you an idea about what Deleuze and Guattari are doing. So they write, um, they write this, flows of intensity, their fluids, their fibers, their continuums and conjunctions of affects, the wind, fine segmentation, micro-perceptions, have replaced the world of the subject. Becomings, becomings animal, becomings molecular, have replaced history, individual or general. So here they are proposing this kind of constant flux and constant change as uh, a kind of identitary or a kind of identity for the human that troubles the kind of unitary and total subject. So it's in that way that they oppose that subject. Now for Foucault, it's a little bit different. In fact, it's, it's a lot different. Unlike Deleuze and Guattari, Foucault doesn't supply us with a kind of opposite to the emergence of this subject, um, at least not in any of the things I've read from him. Um, instead, he he's just kind of looks, he seeks to diagnose what this subject is. And he says that the human, at least the idea of the human that we know today, which is wrapped up with a kind of subjective um, identity, isn't a, a, a universal um, a universal identity. In fact, it emerges at a certain period, and with it comes certain, I guess, certain burdens. Uh, but what is most important is that this subject emerges in response to and as a product of a certain kind of power by through power power uh, gives birth to this kind of subject so the way i like to describe this is like a kid in a sandbox where the kid is this subject now in the sandbox the limits might seem endless the child can work you know can do anything it wants in the sandbox, but we can't lose sight of the fact that that sandbox is essentially bordered, it has borders, so it is restricting, it is restricted. In that way, this kind of subjectivity that emerge, emerges has potential, it can do things, or in Foucault's words, it is productive, it has possibilities, but those possibilities are constrained by the particular episteme, the kind of which is the kind of social, cultural, political paradigm in which it is found that that places limits on it. And there are within these limits various mechanisms that maintain a certain status quo. So you're free to go to the store to shop, you're free to you know surf the internet as much as you want, but you know as a as an oppositionary thing, you aren't free to like really protest. Or you aren't free to really change things. Uh, so we must interrogate the limits of our freedom in that way. So it's in that way that he, he's criticizing this idea of the subject, because he's he's saying that it's it's rather restricting. So we must kind of open it up, maybe. maybe. We need to move beyond what uh, these, these uh, structures are in order to develop something new. But like I said, unlike in Deleuze and Guattari, he doesn't really lay out what that looks like. We get the sense of what it looks like a little bit at the end of the first volume of the history of sexuality when he says something along the lines of, 
we must strip away or we must do away with like sexuality in favor of bodies and pleasure implying that there's um sexuality is is limiting and we can open ourselves up to something new uh but in any case that's my kind of quick introduction to these two thinkers now to return now to the text spivak says that deleuze and foucault in describing this subject and describing the kind of affects that uh, work upon this subject and that the subject works upon that is the subject has a kind of potential to change things that is the subject has a certain propensity for uh, radicality implied within it for Deleuze it's in the fact that the subject is always changing transforming in Foucault it is because the subject is a product of power that it then within it houses a kind of potential to oppose that power to to undo it Spivak says that by focusing on the subjects in this way they lose sight, that is Deleuze and Guattari, lose sight of ideology for Spivak. And it's true. Ideology does not figure very much in the work of Deleuze and Foucault. And that is because they are writing against um, wh what uh, Leotard called uh, these kind of meta-narratives, or these grand, uh, these grand narratives that sought to explain everything. For them, in many, in many cases, even though they do make big, little brief mentions of ideology. Uh, ideology is too simplistic a way to understand the world. To say that simply there's this one overarching narrative that determines how people are is too restrictive for them. So Spivak is suspicious of this, however, because she says that their subject, the subject that they're trying to kind of craft or, or position, is one, in her words, with no geopolitical determinations. It is a free-floating subject. And she's very suspicious of this. And she's like, hmm, who has the privilege to be this free-floating subject, to kind of shed their identity away? Who is privileged like that? Who are these people that aren't marked by gender, by race, by class, that can just do that in, in the eyes of the world? It's kind of like um, professing... Uh, colorblindness, right? Like forgetting that race exists. So in doing that, what Spivak is saying is that they kind of homogenize human experience by saying that, you know, we're all subjects to the same power. We are all these kind of developing, changing uh, balls of affect and flux. And what that does is it erases the fact that for many people, they are marked by race by class they are exploited on the you know on uh, a massive level by you know the international division of labor by you know capitalist exploitation sweatshop labor uh, you know other other kinds of labor imposed primarily on third world women which is and we're just going to say this for now and we're going to kind of um, we're going to mess with it a little bit it does uh, restrict and it does kind of push people into a kind of conformism that does not lend itself to the ways that Deleuze and Foucault are describing this constant flux and change. Because for some people, that doesn't happen. People forced to work 16-hour days, um, you know, just to go home and then, you know, if they can have time to sleep, sleep, do not have this kind of potential. Because they are, you know, all of their potential energy as humans, if such an energy really exists, is is completely absorbed by the capitalist machine. So this is what she says about them here. 
Neither Deleuze nor Foucault seems aware that the intellectual, within socialized capital, brandishing concrete experience, can help consolidate the international division of labor. So this, you know, this this idea of uh, concrete experience for them, or for Spivak, is the idea that Deleuze and Guattari attribute value to the kind of small, real-life instances of, of, you know, the everyday, which, for her... It's missing the forest for the trees. Missing the trees, missing the forest for the trees. I think that's how that goes. That is, they're seeing the little things, but missing the big picture. And that is the big scale, wide scale uh, forms of colonialism and, and capitalism that, you know, work upon so many people on the earth. So she, she goes back to Marx for this. She says that in Marx, we find a better way of understanding uh, kind of you know, wide-scale turmoil on the part of colonized people. Something that we don't really find in Deleuze and Foucault. Because in Foucault, there's like no mention of race as just one example. Like very, only maybe I think in the history of sexuality and maybe the lectures, you get something about race emerging as a kind of uh, biopolitical um, product. But that, that does kind of erase differences even between races and how races are treated. So she characterizes their product projects as ones that are against meta-narratives, against these kind of grand-scale narratives, like Marxism, for instance, because for them, Marxism too, you know, casts too broad a brush over the experiences of people. So they, they say, Marx is too simplistic, essentially, uh, even though Deleuze and Guattari very much indebted to Marx, Foucault is a little bit more critical, um, where Foucault writes in, I believe it was The Order of Things, he says, um, Marx in the 19th century is like a fish in the water. It can't breathe anywhere else. So the idea there is that when Marx tries to, or when Marxists try to uh, claim that everything is reducible to class conflict, they are forgetting for Deleuze and Guattari, they're forgetting about a number of other factors that impose themselves on people that that kind of restrict people. So I think Spivak is sympathetic to that viewpoint, but she challenges that viewpoint. And she says that Marx does not posit a kind of universal collectivity in the way that we might think he does. And if you just read like the Communist Manifesto, this kind of simplistic um, kind of a way uh, um, description of the class experience, then you might come away thinking that, oh, well, this is, seems a little bit reductive. So Spivak wants to kind of clear the air here. And she takes a quote from Marx that goes as follows. Insofar as millions of families live under economic conditions of existence that cut off their mode of life, their interest, and their formation from those of the other classes, and place them in inimical confrontation, they form a class. So this class is not a collective one. It is one that is comprised of splits and breaks and ruptures and, you know, these kind of schisms that trouble the idea that Marx is putting forward this kind of overall narrative. In fact, Marx is diagnosing, at least according to Spivak, the very effects of this separation, the very effects of uh, capitalism in producing these kinds of fluxes, in producing these kinds of ruptures and, 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 and distances between people. So in opposing Marx, Spivak says that these thinkers think too individualistically. 
they try to find too much value in the individual utterances against power, for instance, instead of collectivity against power. And because of that, she says that they are able to dodge institutional responsibility, which is a pretty heavy claim. So she gets then into the way that they, that is Deleuze and Foucault, uh, erase representation and how they erase the signifier. And this is indicative of post-structuralism kind of generally, where um, the signifier was something that was shown to be bound up with the flows of, I guess, power on a very on a very broad level. So there's one thinker that you know speaks to this pretty well, um, Valentin Voloshinov, whose work has been ignored. Not many people read Voloshinov, uh, but he is kind of a precursor to post-structuralism, positing that language operates in you know in response to power alongside power, and representation then is in many cases you know wrapped up within that so language is not separate from the kind of centers of power that we find uh, emerging and we get this too in in friedrich nietzsche's work uh, as well when he considers the way that language and and authority you know are, are wrapped up together so by renouncing the signifier spivak says that deleuze and foucault forget the connections then to ideology, the, the way that language works within and alongside ideology, that is these broad scale movements these, the, and these um, modes of power that exist not at the molecular level, but at the, the molar level. But she accuses them of doing more than just forgetting about these things, more than just kind of ignoring these facts. In, she takes it further and says that their non-subject, that is the subject they posit as this, as this subject of like change and flux, the subject that speaks you know, truth to power, this subject is someone that is only possible if it is placed in relationship to a determined other, a determined object. Because this non-subject for Spivak can't just exist on its own without having a kind of relative point that it can be compared against. So one way to understand it is like you can't have light without darkness. You can't, you can't understand what light is without having uh, its an antithesis, darkness, or a kind of relative mode. Or same with like heat and cold. You can't understand heat without, without cold to kind of, as a relative point to compare. So you can't have this kind of non-determined subject, that is this subject with no geopolitical location, without having a kind of object against which it can be, it can be measured. And this might explain the fact that, you know, you don't get a lot of, uh, you know, testimonies from marginalized people in Deleuze and Foucault. There, there is, there are very many times in which they really speak for the other. They really uh, they speak on behalf of the other. And so we get the sense then that, you know, for these thinkers, these intellectuals, the other doesn't, isn't worthy of being listened to. The other isn't worthy of being attended to. And this is something we see, at least I can speak from my own experience, replicated in various circles, uh, intellectual circles in which, you know, uh, syllabi are comprised primarily of dead white dudes and not, you know, third world women or, you know, just people of color generally. It's just all white guys because white guys are 
the canon. White guys speak for everyone, according to them. You know, they and they don't. They aren't necessarily conscious of this, but this is how uh, this cycle is reproduced. That is speaking on behalf of the other. And in a colonial context, that is just exacerbated so much more. And it is bound up with a history, with the history of colonization. So she considers specifically the way that India was affected by British law. Uh, and she, she spent a great deal of her life in India um, and obviously, you know, lived through the, the effects of this or the kind of uh, the uh, outcome of it or the, the fallout of colonialism, that is British colonialism in India. So she considers this specifically and how uh, the British, you know, uh, suppressed Indian social social life, you know, religious practice, political life in favor of, you know, British ideals. Now, in the in the aftermath of this, and even as it's going on, clearly there were people studying this. Clearly there were people that were curious about the effects of, of colonialism. And many of these people would only focus on people within colonial settings who had power. So that those would either be the colonizers themselves, high political uh, representatives within, um, uh, you know, of the natives of the country within the colonial setting, or, you know, people with power on a more local level that held like local office or something. So these are the people then that would be studied. But what about the common people? You know, what about women? What about even children in these settings. These are, for Spivak, the subaltern. These are the people that won't be heard because, like, you know, as soon as, uh, in the case of India, Britain imposed kind of political uh, life onto these people, at least British political life, then suddenly you had a whole population of people that were not equipped, that didn't have the same kind of understanding of politics as that was which was imposed upon them. So even if they had something to say, that voice would not be heard because they wouldn't know how to adapt that voice to the new political apparatus. So she she wants to extend an olive branch to some of these, you know, these people studying this because at least they were considering something like colonialism and considering people in as close to the, you know, everyday life as they could, unlike for her Deleuze and Foucault who are just, you know, thinking in their you know, they're armchair philosophers thinking away from all of the harms of the world. And like to just extend this critique even further of Deleuze and Foucault, in Deleuze specifically, Deleuze romanticizes uh, the experience of the, the colonized in this whole rhetoric of becoming. So some of the becomings that he uses is like becoming woman or becoming nomad, becoming animal, uh, which are often, often assumes and it it reinvigorates a kind of binarism between the unitary European subject and the kind of possible other, the other that is romanticized as having, you know, infinite possibility by their being closer to maybe nature. And this is, of course, an appropriation of nature and a, just a very gross uh, equation of marginalized people. And in many cases, people who are, and air quotes here, who are not as advanced, which is, of course, not a real marker, but it's one that I think that is internalized by uh, these thinkers without them knowing it, uh, they participate in that um, romanticization of the other that maintains a certain European superiority that they obviously would renounce if, you know, they're criticized for doing that, I think at least, 
but that they nevertheless are not aware of. So they're, they're very appropriative. And in the words of Bell Hooks, who's, I should do Bell Hooks here, um, in when she characterizes, she, I believe that's her pronoun, when she characterizes um, the way that, you know, white Europeans appropriate uh, marginalized, colonized others, she describes it as eating them, kind of consuming those bodies. And in many ways, we see that what's, as that, what's going on here. So any kind of resistance then for Deleuze and Foucault, and they take different forms, it comes down to, you know, the individual instances, as I've already said. So for Foucault, he elevates what, he, what Spivak characterizes in him as alliance politics above class politics. So in her words, she says that the clinic, the asylum, the prison, the university, the, these are, by the way, these are all institutions that Foucault writes about. They all seem to be screen allegories that foreclose a reading of the broader narratives of imperialism. And the same can be said of Deleuze and Guattari and their ideas about deterritorialization. That is, uh, the idea that if we just, you know, undo ourselves from the rigidities of everyday life, that we can open ourselves up to something new uh, and something that's more uh, freeing, more emancipatory. And I just want to add a little asterisk by saying that it is more complicated than that. Um, and I'm not saying that Spivak mischaracterizes them, uh, but there, there is more to be said about it here that I won't get into. So she opposes to Deleuze and Guattari, and this is where we're, Deleuze and Foucault, sorry, uh, and this is where we get into Jacques Derrida. She opposes to them in the work of Derrida, where she says that in relation to them, who in relation to Deleuze and Foucault's emphasis on real politics, real social problems, real history, in quotes, uh, is Derrida is read as someone who is inaccessible, esoteric, and textualistic. So where where is the value she finds in, De in Derrida? What, what is what is useful about Derrida to Spivak? And I would like to say as well that Spivak has a very you know important connection to Derrida and Derrida's work. She wrote the pretty seminal introduction to of grammatology a book that i will do on here eventually i hope if i you know if i can keep doing this it's a lot of work um yeah in which he describes uh deconstruction and this comes out later in some of his other texts too like dissemination and i guess the margins of philosophy and stuff um she suggests that deconstruction is a kind of antidote to what is going on in deleuze and foucault so what the hell is deconstruction? Uh, because that's a very fancy word. And I think that it's one that I think it's thrown around a lot. Uh, and this isn't to say that Derrida has a monopoly on the word deconstruction. But when we're talking about it in the Derridian sense, it means something very specific. So for Derrida, deconstruction has nothing to do with deconstructing. It is not about taking something apart. So, for example, uh, you could say that I'm going to deconstruct um, maybe uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric to find out the kind of racist components to it. Like, let's deconstruct this argument and find out what, you know, what are some of the underlying assumptions of it. That's not what Derrida is saying. Uh, his form of deconstruction is different. So, what does it mean then? Well, it's a method that you apply to a binary. 
and we might think of a few binaries as an example might think of the binary uh, uh, straight and gay or heterosexual and homosexual we might think colonized colonizer we might think subject and other we might think you know insert anything here rich poor anything like that okay and what deconstruction tries to do is it tries to show that each side of this binary is contingent upon the existence of the other now there's a thinker that i find puts this the best or explains this in my mind in the best way and that's Eve Sedgwick, who in her chapter, The Epistemology of the Closet, which is a very important text in the history of queer theory, says that with deconstruction, we find out that being straight, being heterosexual, is not an identity marker in itself. It only becomes so when we have this kind of other that it can be positioned against. And so you have these categories emerge like homosexual as being a marked category that is uh, apparently recognizable in relation to heterosexuality. And so it is then that you cannot separate uh, this binary, the two parts of the binary from one another, because they are necessary to form each. They, are, they rely upon each other. So in her words, uh, she says that, and she's just talking about two sides of a binary here. She says that... Um, Deconstruction maintains an indispensable phase of reversal. So the, these are her words. Deconstruction, deconstruction reveals the extent to which the ontologically valorized term A depends for its meaning on the simultaneous subsumption and exclusion of term B. So in this case, let's say heterosexual and homosexual, where heterosexuality, assumed to be the superior one, uh, is dependent upon the... Uh, the proximity of homosexuality that it can, you know, it marks, that it can um, shut away, that it can hide or try to hide in order to give itself a kind of uh, a base upon which to uh, stand, to be itself, um, to occupy a position worthy of a kind of acknowledgement. And this is, I think, the power of deconstruction for, um, for Spivak. And she uses it in the following way to consider colonization or to consider sorry the subject object split and that's the split between like the european you know subject and the colonized third world object or other where as soon as we know that this idea of the other is contingent upon the assumption that the subject is superior then we come to know or learn that this other doesn't exist in the world it's it's a purely ideological creation it creates it is created in response to a certain power that is one that tries to uh, maintain a kind of superiority on the part of the subject by crafting this other that is marked that can be uh, subordinated and he that is derrida wants to in response not in response but instead of deleuze and foucault he wants to render and this is spivak's words he wants to render delirious that interior voice that is the voice of the other in us. So to show that this otherness that we think exists over there, that is the otherness that we can appropriate through the work of Deleuze by, you know, becoming other, becoming object, becoming woman, becoming anything like that, uh, is actually already within us. And that other doesn't exist out in the world 
on it on naturally. It doesn't, it's not a universal thing. It is one that is created by our very maintain, maintenance of this split, of this split that is maintained in the work of Deleuze and Foucault. At least that's how Spivak's been characterizing it. But then should we say that, uh, yeah, okay, if we don't like the idea of the other being like an object that is being uh, rendered, you know, less than human, less than subject, should we then make of it a subject? And that language is, is already problematic because then it's like us gifting this idea of subjectivity, us, us bestowing upon the other uh, a subjectivity, giving a gift that obviously can never be given back, putting these people in a kind of perpetual debt to us. So Spivak is suspicious or cautious of any such suggestion, suggesting that uh, that is simply to submit the subject to what she calls an imperialist subject constitution that she's already skeptical of. And what this comes down to, and this is a really famous sentence that she had uh, developed before this, this piece, but that she's bringing up again. And this is the idea that it comes down to white men uh, to save brown women from brown men or the verbatim, it's white men are saving brown women from brown men. Like it's the West's responsibility to save the helpless other, the helpless, in this case, woman, uh, brown woman from, you know, the kind of barbaric acts of, and I use that term, I should be more sensitive uh, with that, using that language, um, the, the kind of acts that are assumed to be violent or hostile because they are, you know, different to the white European uh, gaze. So this reached full force in the colonization of India by the British in their condemnation of sati, which was, and I don't, I hope I pronounced that right, sati that was, you know, first of all, mis, mistranslated, mistranscribed by the British, uh, the victims of which were mis, mistranscribed, mistranslated. Uh, and the, the act is the act of a widow immolating herself, that is uh, sacrificing herself through, um, through burning, uh, upon her husband's funeral pyre, her dead husband's funeral pyre. So the British saw this and were like, wow, that's not great. Uh, you know, we have to try and get rid of that. We have to turn this into a, an act that can be punished, right? Or, well, I don't know what more punishment can be inflicted upon someone than, than that. Uh, but it's something that has to be outlawed for the British because they saw it as being, you know, kind of archaic, violent, Maybe they even saw it as being like sexist, where these women were uh, subject totally to the will of their their husband. That even in death they were supposed to give their bodies to this to this man. And this was seen that is the uh, condemnation of uh, sati. The act was a means by which Britain saw themselves elevating India into the good society you know, making them good, making them better, making them European, we might go so far as to say. And she says that it's kind of, it kind of had, in some cases, the opposite effect, because this kind of uprooting of Indian culture, that is the erasure of Indian culture, not just of the Sati, but of, you know, other religious uh, traditions, like Hinduism, and, and you know, the, the Vedic tradition, and, and, and everything like that, um, and the, all the other ones, uh, the uprooting of all of these things actually made people more curious about their so-called traditional, uh, their roots. And so people were growing more fascinated in, in, in Sati. But she just kind of mentions that as, a, as an offhand. Um, in, so Spivak is 
it's a little bit difficult and she's very careful about this because sati isn't something that she wants to necessarily applaud but she sees it as a ritual that is in a sense the reclaiming of one's identity and one's life in in the act of willingly taking it away so it's kind of paradoxical and it brings praise in her words for the act of choice and to just condemn it as a crime is to erase it within the 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 broader ideological paradigm of india which is not like a homogenous one like india is an extremely large country with very different cultures you know from town to town like different languages cultures identities from you know small area to to another small area even within cities uh so it's i'm not saying that it's just one homogenous whole of course uh but it was still something that was um kind of homogeneously taken away or imposed upon by the british and as a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, Spivak says, oh, well, maybe they would have accepted this kind of self-sacrifice if it had been for, like, a religious icon, like a Christ-like figure, or for, like, a military general, or for something like this, in the name of war or something, which, of course, she's saying, because it's funny what, you know, the British, the Europeans consider to be proper forms of, like, self-sacrifice, like, like, legitimate altruistic ones. So, she has a tenuous relationship with sati because she and she goes back to the kind of early translations of it or where it emerged from the uh the oldest text in the vedic tradition that that is the the i think I pronounce this right the the rig veda which is the first text um where the supposed justification of sati is for her flimsy at best like it could be it could have just been mistranslated and it could mean something like you know uh, women are supposed to attend their husband's funerals. And that was translated into women standing upon a burning fire. But this reveals, and you know, it was always men translating these things too. This reveals that between patriarchy and imperialism, and these are her words, so patriarchy maybe in Indian society and imperialism by, you know, the British, subject constitution and object formation, the figure of the woman disappears not into a pristine nothingness, but into a violent shuffling uh, or shuttling, which is the displaced figuration of the third world woman caught between tradition and modernization. So we have this so-called tradition in which women are being spoken for because they're being told what to do uh, because they don't have access to these texts to, to translate them, denied like education. Their voices aren't even heard if they are getting educated. And you have these British imperial others telling them you know what they can and cannot do so between these two they do not have a place right they are just they are erased on the world stage so what she does then is she wants to consider the ways that um, sati should be how it can be evaluated in a more meaningful i guess in a meaningful way that considers the specific ideological considerations where she gives the example of how in bengal which i believe would be in northern india um uh, the act of sati was committed at was was done at a higher rate and because women could actually inherit property from the the a dead husband it was one part of india where, where that could happen and she says that oh isn't that a coincidence suddenly more women are committing suicide when they can have power so we can't forget that maybe uh there was more influence for women more more uh kind of persuasion 
for women to be committing sati in these places where they could actually have power. It was kind of a way by which these women would be um, essentially taken out of the equation and, you know, inheritances that could then go to uh, the rest of the family or something, um, which is obviously a, a much more specific analysis than these broad uh, ones, you know, committed by the British imperialists. And so with that, we, we open up a more holistic engagement with this act, or in her words, the broader question of the constitution of the sex subject, and this is the woman, is hidden by foregrounding the visible violence of sati. So, you know, we see sati, and it's like, oh, well, that's not great, and that clouds our judgment of everything else around it. So we lose sight of the ideological implications of it. We lose sight of, you know, its specific place within a sociotemporal, uh, you know, kind of paradigm, which is obviously wrong. So she concludes this essay by considering the case of a young woman by the name, and I have to pronounce it uh, because it's just to erase her would be would be obviously wrong, uh, but I think it's pronounced um, Swari, uh, who's a young woman who killed herself in her father's apartment. And it was unclear why she killed herself, but it was assumed that she didn't do it because of an illicit pregnancy, for example, because she was menstruating at the time. So it was revealed later on uh, that she was a member of a militant group for India's independence and was tasked with a political assassination that she couldn't go through in the end. She couldn't go through with it in the end. So to avoid being assumed to, to have suicided herself because of an illicit pregnancy or an illicit relationship or something, she waited. She waited until she was menstruating so that the people who found her dead would know that she uh, didn't do it because of that, because of um, because of an illicit pregnancy. And so I just want to read a couple of things from the last uh, the last page. So she says this about that act: the displacing gesture, which is waiting for menstruation, is at first a reversal of the interdict against a menstruating widow's right to immolate herself. The unclean widow must wait publicly until the cleansing bath of the fourth day, when she is no longer menstruating, in order to claim her dubious privilege. So in that way, it's kind of a reversal. Like, this is how this woman was able to to maybe speak, even though she it wasn't an act of speaking, right? Um, it was one that she could only do in death, almost. So in this reading, she says, uh, Bhuvan Swari... Swari's suicide is an unemphatic, ad hoc, subaltern rewriting of the social text of Sati suicide as much as the hegemonic account of the blazing fighting familiar Durga, which is something else she mentioned that I didn't go into. So the emergent dissenting possibilities of that hegemonic account of the fighting mother are well documented and popularly well remembered through the discourse of the male leaders and participants in the independence movement. The subaltern as female cannot be heard nor read. So they don't, they don't have a voice. Now, I just want to read the last little paragraph. Uh, that, that This concludes the text. Um, the subaltern cannot speak. There is no virtue in global laundry lists with woman as a pious item. Representation has not withered away. The female intellectual as intellectual has a circumscribed, circumscribed task, which she must not disown with a flourish. So she's, you know, this is a kind of call, in a sense, a call to action or call to arms. Um that is, it tries to, you know, firstly call attention to this, this lack of voice. Uh, but it is one that is not, you know, we're not without hope, like there's, there's potential here. And so I guess that kind of 
wraps up this text, this extremely complicated text. And I hope I was able to clear it up for anyone out there that has read it or is trying to read it, trying to make sense of it. Um, but it's and I want to be as much humility as I can. It's a very difficult text. And I hope I did justice to Spivak because she is wicked smart. Um, and you know, is a, she is an encyclopedia of one, you know, the stuff that she knows. But I guess if to reduce this text to just a few words, it is her trying to revitalize a broad understanding of colonialism and industrial uh, global capitalism in the subordination of, you know, colonized third world people. And these discourses permeated by Deleuze and Foucault and broader, you know, post-structuralist arguments often forget that and they often erase those experiences in favor of you know the white european subject that can just um with their privilege do whatever they want like they're open to this endless possibility this endless becoming which is a you know it's all well and good but it depends upon certain privileges yeah if i mischaracterize spivak please let me know um i'd love to hear what anyone else has to say because it's extremely complicated and i didn't cover everything but i think I got, I got at the core of what's going on here. Uh, but yeah, on that note, take care.